Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. For the next two months or so leading up to Easter and then a couple weeks after Easter, we will be learning from chapters 26, 27, and 28 of this book, the final three chapters. And if you don't already know this about the Gospel of Matthew, uh, basically these three chapters is when things get quite dicey uh, in the storyline. We are now well within the final week of Jesus' life, and for the most part, we are going to be in the final few days before his crucifixion in the Bible. And at this point, Jesus has been telling his disciples with increasing frequency that the end is very near for him in his life on earth. And in response to that warning that he has given them, the disciples have done anything from outright ignore that warning to being confused by it to actively trying to argue him out of it as he says it. So they're not doing great with this particular warning from Jesus. And in today's passage, we are going to begin with him reminding them of this pending reality yet again. He's going to tell them the same thing yet again, and we're going to see how they Respond. So start reading with me, chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. The Passover, if you're unfamiliar, was the Jewish celebration of when God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. The Passover, Jesus says, is two days away, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus, again, making it abundantly clear to his disciples what is about to happen. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So let's pause briefly for a bit of context here. So Jesus just told his disciples yet again that in a matter of days, he will be handed over to be killed. And turns out, right around the same time that he says this, this group of people known as the chief priests are plotting behind the scenes to accomplish precisely that. Now, you might ask the question, why does this group of people have it out for Jesus? Sounds like there's some beef there, right? There's something going on in the background to where they want to eliminate him from the picture. In short, for context, it's because Jesus has been regularly taking aim at this group of people, the chief priests, as of late. So just a day or two before this story happens, he waltzed into the temple, which was the chief priest's place of employment and the center of the Jewish faith at the time. And while he was there, Jesus started turning over tables and calling out the chief priests for their corruption and immorality. I don't know what your experience is with calling out hyper-religious people and their morality, but it tends not to go well. So they don't love that Jesus did that at the temple. 
Jesus has also been saying since then that in no uncertain terms, the temple that they prize so highly, that's at the center of their very faith, that that temple is going to be toppled and destroyed in the very near future. He also starts doing this thing lately where he claims to be God in the flesh, which according to the chief priests is blasphemy. So take your pick, really, out of the things Jesus has been doing. But for one reason or another, this group of people and some others connected to them are a tad peeved at Jesus at the moment, to put it lightly. And apparently they are irritated and angered to the point that they are ready to eliminate him altogether. They're ready to kill him. But there's one caveat to their plan that they mention. They decide that they should not arrest Jesus, quote, during the festival. And that's the festival of unleavened bread, which connected to the Passover. Or they say there will be a riot. So here's what that's all about. We found out in our last section of Matthew that during this particular week of the year, leading up to the Passover, the city of Jerusalem would actually swell from about 50,000 people as a population to potentially over 2 million people. Just for clarity, that would be like the population of Manhattan and Staten Island combined descending upon Kingsport, Tennessee for a week. (laughs) That's, That's quite the influx of people to happen in the course of a week. Plus, many of those two million people that are there in the city because of another stunt that Jesus has just pulled now believe him to be the Messiah. The the long-awaited, liberating king of God's people. Jesus almost started a riot a few days ago in Jerusalem when he rode into the city on a donkey. So around two million people in, in tight quarters, under Roman oppression, celebrating a pastime of liberation from past oppression, and who now believe that their liberator is in their midst. To put it mildly, tensions are a bit high in the city of Jerusalem at this very moment. So that means that the chief priests are angry, yes, but they're also smart. They know that if they arrest Jesus in broad daylight while everyone there in the city thinks that he's the Messiah, they will have a very unideal situation on their hands. And people will likely turn on them for what they are doing to Jesus. So they decide to wait until Passover, to wait until after Passover to do what they're going to do, or at least that's what they decide at this point in the story. And it's at this point that the author of the story, Matthew, actually pans the camera over to a totally different scene. He's going to return to the chief priest before we're done this morning, but for now, the scene actually changes entirely. So keep reading with me in verse 6 of our passage. While Jesus was in Bethany... At the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So Jesus is at a guy named Simon's house enjoying a meal with the disciples and likely a few others. While he's there, a woman approaches the table and uses a jar of her perfume to anoint Jesus' head. Now, this would have been a show of honor and affection in that culture at that time. We also know from the Gospel of John's account that this isn't just any woman. It's actually Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who we read about elsewhere. She, she, we think, was one of Jesus' female disciples. 
the jar of perfume that she uses would have been worth approximately a year's wages. So the description, very expensive by Matthew, is a pretty good description. I mean, just think about something that you own right now that is worth a year's salary. Chances are that's a pretty important item to you or bare minimum something you don't want to misplace, right? So this is, this is what Mary does. Economically, this was very likely the most expensive item she owned, likely by a long shot. But then she does the unthinkable with the item. She, she pours out all of the perfume on Jesus' head in an act of worship to him. Now, the disciples notice this and don't like it. Verse 8. When the disciples saw this, it says, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and, and the money given to the poor. Now, now on the surface, I, I want us to realize this actually seems like a very understandable objection to what's happening. Jesus talked a lot in his ministry about caring and providing for the poor. It seems like that's something that's fairly important to him and his priorities on earth. And yet here is Mary with this jar of perfume that is worth quite a bit of money, and, and she just wastes it all by pouring it on Jesus' head. That, that money could have gone to better places. It could have been sold and the proceeds used to provide for the poor, something that Jesus evidently cares a lot about. Likely, if you and I were sitting at this table, having this meal with Jesus, if we were the disciples, we would be thinking and saying something very similar to what they say. But there's actually a little bit more going on underneath the surface of what's going on at the table. The Gospel John's account, again, of this same story, tells us that the primary disciple who voiced this objection to what happened with the perfume was a disciple named Judas. And yes, that Judas. We're told in the Gospel of John in chapter 12 that, quote, Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is not genuinely interested in caring for the poor in what he says here. He's interested in his own bottom line. He is actively stealing from Jesus' ministry, and that's why he raises this particular objection to Mary's act of devotion. He knows, Judas knows, that he cannot personally profit from spilled perfume. He can profit from money given to Jesus' ministry. Judas, at least at this point in the story, seemingly has very different objectives than Jesus and the rest of the disciples, which is going to become even more evident by the time we're done. But for now, we get Jesus' response to this objection from Judas and the other disciples. Look with me at verse 10. Aware of this, meaning aware of what the disciples are thinking and saying about what just happened, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus is once again trying to emphasize what is about to happen to him any day now. Verse 12, when she poured this perfume on my body, Jesus says, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, 
the way that this story plays out continues a bit of a theme that we've seen repeatedly in the Gospel of Matthew as we've worked our way through it. And that is the theme that theologians will call reversal. The theme of reversal. So over and over again, in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen that the characters in the story that should understand things about Jesus typically don't understand things. And the characters that aren't expected to understand things about Jesus based on their ethnicity or education level or background or lifestyle or any number of other factors, those characters who you wouldn't expect to understand things actually do understand Jesus will repeatedly point out in the Gospel of Matthew that the people his society esteems, like chief priests and Pharisees and teachers of the law and others, that those people are not actually all that impressive in his book. And then he will turn around and marvel at the faith and devotion of people that his society typically does not esteem, like prostitutes and tax collectors and Roman soldiers and pagan Gentile women. Here in this story, the one that we're reading about today, the 12 guys that should get what's about to happen to Jesus, if for no other reason than he has now told them about it repeatedly, they don't seem to get it at all. While Mary, who hasn't spent anywhere near as much time with Jesus directly as they have, who hasn't been privy to many of those same conversations that he's had with them, she apparently does get it. Jesus points that dynamic out to the disciples and then says that because she gets it, because she understands what is happening here, what she has done will also be told throughout the world as a memory to her. No doubt, a big part of that is this story's inclusion in three of the four gospels that people read and study about to this day. Now, we don't get to know how all of the disciples respond to this rebuke from Jesus, but we do find out in the passage how Judas responds. Look with me in verse 14 of the passage. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. So you remember them? The ones actively trying to find a way to locate and arrest Jesus. Judas goes to them, 15, and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Now, we don't know exactly how much this was because the original language here is kind of obscure, but it is likely around four months' wages, maybe a little bit less. So, so it's not nothing, but it's also significantly less than the perfume worth a year's wages that Mary just poured out in front of Jesus, which I think is at least part of why Matthew mentions these stories back to back. Judas is willing to betray Jesus for far less money than Mary is willing to devote in worship to Jesus. Do you see that in the story? So we're going to talk more about that momentarily. For now, I just want you to observe that in the storyline. Because then Matthew closes this story with one of, in my opinion, the most horrific sentences in the Gospels, if not in the whole Bible. Verse 16. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. For reasons we're not entirely privy to in the story, something shifts in Judas. 
Something changes in his heart. He, he takes the deal from the chief priest and he prepares to betray Jesus to the chief priest, people who will eventually see to it that Jesus is crucified and killed. Now, we're going to circle back to one key detail about this whole story before we're done that I think is important. But for now, I want us to try to answer the question that we always try to answer when we read and study a passage from the Bible, and that's what does this story mean? So we've talked for a while about what it says, what the details are. Now I want to know what it means. And maybe more specifically, what it means for us, what it means for you and I here in the 21st century following Jesus and attempting to follow Jesus. Here's where I think we should start answering that question. At its core, this is a story that asks the question, how much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth? And specifically, it is a story about two very different answers given to that question. Mary answers it one way, and both Judas and the chief priest answer it a very different way. Those people have very different perspectives on the worth of Jesus. And part of what we find out in the passage is that that question, how much is Jesus worth, that's not really a question that can just be answered theoretically, at least not well. I mean, I have faith that most of us in the room who claim to follow Jesus, if I were to ask you the question, how much is Jesus worth to you, I have confidence that most of you would answer that question by saying everything. Jesus is worth everything to me. But here's the thing. How much Jesus is worth to us isn't a question that can only be answered with our words. It gets answered with your life. It's not a theoretical question. It is a very, very practical question. In the story, we find out how much Jesus is worth in very practical, very measurable terms, right? Four months' wages, approximately, versus a year's wages, the most valuable possession that Mary has offered up in worship to Jesus versus the very life of Jesus for a bit of financial gain by Judas. From those details in the story, I think we could say that there are two different ways to measure how much Jesus is worth to a person, to people like Judas and Mary and to people like you and I today. Two different ways to answer that question. First, how much Jesus is worth to us gets measured by what you use Jesus to gain. What you use Jesus to gain. In the story, Judas leverages his relational proximity to Jesus to offer Jesus up to the chief priests. And in just a couple of weeks, we will read about how Judas leads a crowd directly to Jesus as he prays in a garden, betrays him with a kiss, hands him over, and then collects his 30 pieces of silver in return. Judas sees Jesus as an item in his arsenal to be traded and bartered with in order to obtain what he really wants in life. In his case specifically, Judas's case, it's money. That's what he really wants. We're told that Judas, quote, helped himself to the communal money that Jesus and the disciples carried around. And here in this story, he betrays one of his best friends for just 30 pieces of silver. The thing Judas wanted most in life 
was money, and he used Jesus in order to gain it. So I would just ask you the question, are there any things that you often use Jesus to gain? Maybe for you, like Judas, it's, it's money. Maybe you were told somewhere along the line that if you followed Jesus, he would in turn ensure that you are blessed financially. And if you're honest, that's at least a big part of why you decided to become a Christian, for money. Now, maybe you believe that in the sort of comical way where the, that you see televangelists on TV with big cufflinks talk about, like maybe that's how you believe it, or maybe you believe it in a much more subtle way than that. You just think that if you believe in God, if you follow Jesus, he will ensure some measure of financial stability and provision in your life as a result. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe it's money. Maybe for you, it's not money. It's relationships. So if you were just completely honest with yourself, you would say that you decided to follow Jesus because you were under the impression that if you did, he would provide you with someone to date and eventually marry. And it doesn't help that sometimes churches and pastors will at least hint at this, if not outright promise it, right? Follow Jesus and trust your life to him. And, and when you're least expecting it, he'll bring along the right person for you. I've heard that sermon preached time and time again in churches. It'll happen for you eventually, they say. But then maybe for you, you waited and waited and waited some more, and that person never came along. Maybe that's the thing that you thought Jesus would gain you as a result of following him. Maybe for you, it's something more like social acceptance. So living in the Bible Belt can be really, really weird. I think a lot of us have figured that out by now. Because most places in the country, and especially most places in the world, saying that you're a Christian doesn't really get you much of anywhere, at least socially speaking. But here in the South, it, at least some of the time, it actually can work to your advantage, right? So sometimes people will say they're a Christian because the job they're applying for is a faith-based organization, or, or a faith-friendly organization, or because the people making the decisions in the organization at least claim to be Christians and are partial towards Christians. Or, or maybe it, it's saying that you're a Christian because it helps you find friends in a city where a lot of people at least claim to still be Christians. So, so maybe you showed up at our church today or a while back, and you stuck around our church simply because you love the community here. And listen, we're glad you love the community here. We think that's great. But just so we're clear, the reason you likely love the community here is because this is a community of people who have decided to leverage their entire lives for the cause of Jesus. That's what makes it appealing. That's what makes the community here compelling. It's not because we're awesome people. It's because we've devoted our lives to Jesus and he's worth it. And so, so if you're around our church, but you haven't actually decided at a personal level to follow Jesus, we want you to know this is a safe place for you to be and ask questions and be honest about that. But I will say at some point, there's a good chance that if you are not following Jesus, you will feel a little bit on the outside of things here. Because the reason that we are this type of community is because there are people here who have devoted their lives to the cause of Jesus. And for some of you, that's where you are at 
currently. If you were completely honest, you do not have much desire to follow Jesus in specific arenas of your life. It's just that claiming that you follow Jesus helps you gain some things that you do want, like friends and community. And I just want you to see, because I care about you, and I want you to discover what following Jesus is, I want you to see that what that is actually doing is using Jesus to gain something that you actually want more than him. Maybe it's something else for you that I haven't mentioned. Maybe it's comfort or health or security or control or power. Maybe it's something as simple as an easier life. Just believing that nothing terrible will happen to you, your family, if you are a Christian. My point is that there is really no shortage of things that people will use Jesus in order to gain. But it's here that we have to understand a very important distinction. Following Jesus is not about using him to gain all the things that you actually want more than him. That's not how it works. Following Jesus is about seeing Jesus as an end in and of himself. He's the prize, not the means to the prize. The the late Timothy Keller, I think, put this so succinctly, so helpfully. He once said in one of his books, religious people find God useful. In other words, they use him to gain something else that they truly want. But, he says, Christians find God beautiful. Christians find God beautiful. Or, instead of beautiful, we could say worthy. Christians find God worthy. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Not to see everything else in the world as worthy of giving him up, but to see him as worthy of everything else that you might have to give up. If Jesus is what you use to gain something else, that means you are actually worshiping something other than Jesus. You're in essence worshiping yourself by claiming to worship him. But that's not following Jesus. Following Jesus is about seeing Jesus himself as the prize worthy of everything else that we might have to give up. Which brings us to the second way of determining how much Jesus is worth. And that is what we give up to gain Jesus. What we give up to gain Jesus. So Mary, in the story, is quite the contrast to Judas. We're told that she arrives at the house where Jesus is at the table for dinner, and she pours out a year's worth of wages. In all likelihood, the most expensive item that she possesses. She pours it all out on Jesus. She wastes it all on him, at least from the perspective of the disciples. And yet Jesus commends her for what she does. He holds her up as an example before Judas and before the other disciples. He holds her up as a picture of what true devotion actually looks like, of what it truly looks like to see Jesus as worth everything, even your most prized possessions. Mary understood Jesus to be worth, quite literally, anything and everything that she had to give. And I can't help but see Mary's example in this story and wonder if we need to recapture some of this in our own hearts today. Because here's the reality. At least right now, in the modern West, we don't always feel like we have to give up very much to follow Jesus, right? I mean, certainly not our most prized possessions or the the things and people closest to us. 
Like, like for most of us, when, when our families found out that we had decided to follow Jesus, they probably didn't disown us as a result. They, they might have actually liked it. They might have celebrated it, right? Or, or maybe they pushed back on it a little. Maybe they got a little bit weirded out by that decision of ours. Maybe for a select few of us, they did actually turn hostile about it towards us. But that probably didn't happen for the majority of us. Most of us probably didn't get fired from our job when people at our job found out we were Christians, right? I mean, same thing. Maybe they got a little bit weird. Maybe we didn't get invited as often to go out for drinks after work with the rest of the crew, maybe something like that. But I highly doubt that many of us lost our jobs over it. The simple fact is that at least currently, that is not typically the situation here in the States. But I'll tell you right now, there are plenty of places in the world where that is the situation. There are places where if your family finds out that you decided to follow Jesus, they hold a funeral for you because you are essentially dead to them from that point on. Places where if people at your job find out that you follow Jesus, you're done immediately. And you're probably not getting a job anywhere else that knows anything about it. There are places in the world where if the local government finds out that you're a Christian, you are detained or jailed or worse as a result. And here's what's fascinating to me about those places in the world. In a lot of those places where that is the situation, that is the dynamic, Christianity is growing like crazy. The kingdom of God is growing and expanding faster in those places than you would ever imagine. Why do you think that is? Well, I would imagine it's at least in part because those harsh dynamics force each and every follower of Jesus in those places to make a decision and answer a question. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth losing everything? Or is he not? And over and over again, what we're seeing is Asian believers and Iranian believers and Nigerian believers say out loud, yes, he is worth losing everything if that's what it comes to. Jesus is worth giving anything and everything that I have to give up in order to gain him. The posture of those believers reminds me so vividly of Jesus saying in the Gospels, whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospel will find it. Now, just for clarity, I don't bring any of that up to shame or guilt anyone here in the U.S. I, I don't think we need to feel bad about the fact that our country is, at least comparatively, less openly antagonistic towards the Christian faith. But I do bring it up as a way of asking you, what do we need to be okay losing or giving up for the sake of Jesus? For the cause of Jesus, for the kingdom of Jesus to go forward. You may not ever be asked to lose your family for following Jesus, but you absolutely may have to face estrangement from your family. You may absolutely have to face many difficult, uncomfortable, awkward conversations with them. You may absolutely have to decide whether to stand up to your family or not. You might be in a position where you can make things easy and comfortable for your family and with your family, or you can stick to your convictions, but you cannot do both. 
You may not ever have to forfeit your job for following Jesus, but you absolutely may be passed over for a promotion. You may absolutely have to answer uncomfortable questions to your coworkers about what you believe and why and be accused of hating groups of people that you in fact do not hate. You might be in a position where you have the opportunity to do what's right or to do what's going to get you a raise. You might be in a position where you can lie to get ahead or you can tell the truth and stay exactly where you are. You may be misunderstood, misinterpreted, misrepresented because of what you believe. All of that very well could happen at your job. Uh, In the world of dating, single people, you may very well find yourself in a position where you can stay with a person that you really, really like, who really, really wants to sleep with you, or you can faithfully follow Jesus in that arena of your life, even if it means likely losing the relationship and being mocked and or judged by the person you are in a relationship with. As a parent, you might find yourself in a position where you can have your kid participate in every single extracurricular activity that there is on offer. Or you can say no to some of those opportunities so that your family can be involved in a local church. Even if that means your kid's missing out on some fun stuff. You see, whether we fully realize it or not, in every single one of those scenarios and more, the question we are being asked to answer is how much is Jesus worth? How much is he worth to us? What are we willing to lose or give up or forfeit for his sake? What are we willing to give up because of him, to get more of him in return? You and I, just like Judas, just like Mary, are faced weekly with decisions, big and small, that reveal our functional answer to that question. How much is Jesus worth? Is he worth the fear of missing out? Is he worth the pain of strained and awkward relationships? Is he worth singleness? Is he worth a loss of potential income? Is he worth giving up a night every week to go sit around a table with other followers of Jesus, even when it's inconvenient and frustrating and awkward? Those are not theoretical questions in the least. They are very practical, measurable questions, at least a lot of the time. So I want to ask all of us that question today. I just want to ask, point blank, how much is Jesus worth to you? How do the decisions and priorities and choices in your life answer that question at a functional level? What have you used Jesus to gain? And then what are you willing to give up in order to gain him? I think it is well worth spending some time reflecting on that question this week. Maybe reflecting on it some on your own and some with other followers of Jesus who can help you speak into the answer to that question from what they see about your life. I would recommend both of those settings. But let's not overlook this question as a follower of Jesus. I would argue that we can't not answer this question. In fact, we are functionally answering it every single day of our lives. But at the same time, I also don't want us to end there this morning. I want us to end by asking and answering one more question. 
Here's the other one I'm so interested in as I read through this story in Matthew chapter 26. It's the question, what did Mary see in Jesus? What did Mary see in Jesus? She's our example in this story, right? She's the person that we want to be like. We want to be willing to give up things in order to gain Jesus, worship Jesus, all of that. So what did Mary see in Jesus? What was it exactly, to be, what was it exactly that prompted her to believe that Jesus was, in fact, worth everything? Doesn't it seem like we need the answer to that question, too? What, what caused Mary to draw the conclusion that Jesus was worth the most valuable possession that she had and ultimately worth her entire life's devotion as a follower of Jesus? What did she see in Jesus? I think the answer to that question is in what could seem like minor details of this story, but I don't believe they're minor at all. I believe every single word is put in the Bible for a reason, and I think this is incredibly important to understanding the story. When we read John's account of this story, the one that I mentioned in John chapter 12, he gives us one additional detail that Matthew does not about the story. He says that this interaction between Jesus and Mary happened on a very specific day of the calendar, namely that it happened six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. Now, that likely does not mean very much to most of us in this room, but it absolutely would mean something to the average Jewish person reading this story. Because they would know that something happened every single year exactly six days before the Passover. If you were a Jewish family celebrating the Passover meal exactly six days out, you would go and select the Passover lamb from your flock that would be offered as a sacrifice six days later. You would go out into the fields, you would choose a lamb without blemish or spot in the language of the Old Testament, and you would bring that lamb into your home. That lamb would then be inspected to make sure that it met all the criteria for the sacrifice, for it being the Passover lamb, and then assuming that it did, that lamb would then be anointed with oil in preparation to be killed. That's how it worked. Which I think means that in this story, when Mary anoints Jesus' body with perfume six days before the Passover, it's because she realizes something. What she does in this story is a show of worship and devotion and affection, but it's not just that. It is Mary demonstrating that she believes Jesus to be the Passover lamb. She understands seemingly better than most any of the male disciples at this point in the story what is about to happen to Jesus and why. She understands that he is about to become the sacrifice for all of them. He will be demonstrated to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. She understands that Jesus will soon give up everything, even his very life, to become what she and the disciples and you and I all needed him to be, what we presently need him to be. His body will be broken. His blood will be shed for us as the Passover lamb. That, according to Mary, is what makes him worth anything and everything that she has to give up. That is what makes him worth losing anything in order to gain. That to her is what makes Jesus worthy. So this is a story about what Jesus is worth, to be sure. But, but it's ultimately a story about what makes Jesus worthy. 
It's about understanding who Jesus is, who he would become, and how he would become those things. It's about understanding him as the one who gave up everything in order to gain us and then allows us in return to gain him. Before it is a story about our sacrifice, it is a story about Jesus' sacrifice about him becoming our sacrifice on our behalf. He was the one who gave up everything on the cross. And if that's what he did for us, it follows that we would be compelled as his people to take exactly the same posture in return, to give up our lives for him. Jesus is infinitely, ultimately worthy. He demonstrated that so clearly for us on the cross. So each week, together, as a community in this room, we come to the tables together, and we remember that precise moment in human history when Jesus became the Passover lamb for us. The the moment when Jesus demonstrated clearly how worthy he truly is. We take the bread that represents his broken body. We take the cup that represents his spilled blood. We took those elements together and we actually ingest them into our very beings. We take those elements into our bodies and we ask that he would help our lives and our hearts reflect that same glory, that worth that we see in Jesus. So as we do that, I just want you to consider our question. What is Jesus worth to me? What does my life currently communicate about Jesus' worth? And in the areas where it falls short, and we all have areas where it falls short, this morning is the time to offer those things up to him and ask him to change our hearts and minds about them. Maybe there's work that you need to do there. Maybe you need to grab somebody that you came here with this morning and talk through that. Maybe you need to grab somebody from your life group and wrestle through all of that. If you're here for the very first time this morning and you came by yourself and you don't know who to talk to about it, but you know you need to talk about it, uh, you're in luck because today, for the very first time, we're actually going to have a team of people down here that would love to pray with you and process that stuff with you, our prayer team. They're going to be down here in front of the stage as we sing and as we respond, and they are ready to talk with you through whatever you need to talk through. They would absolutely love to do that with you. And then they'd love to pray over you and ask that God would help you by his spirit to put those things into practice. They'd also love to connect you with anybody who can help. So feel free to participate in any and all of that. As we respond this morning, all of it is available to you as we respond by reflecting on and celebrating just how worthy Jesus is. Let's pray.